and welcome to another edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. I am lucky enough to be joined today. I say joined, I've actually travelled halfway across London to come to uh, Wasserman's office over in Aldwych, and I am here with Lena Altson Gabel, Group MD at Wasserman. Hello. Hello and Joe Tung, CEO and founder of Tongue Tied Management and a director at Women in Football. Hi, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for travelling halfway across London. <laughs> <laughs> I make that sound like it's a really long journey. I came like, north of the river. I mean, you know, oh, that's, wow. that's you the first for me. <laughs> yeah, we're in, we're in the wonderful Watson offices, actually. This is great. I think I've scared everyone by setting up too many lights. But if we could just dive straight into some football chat, that'd be great. So I, I wanted to start with some chat about media because I feel like it's the thing that makes the world go round in sports and especially in football. It's increasingly becoming important, I think, for the women's game. We've obviously had the record NWSL TV rights deals this year. We're about to come up to the new WSL domestics rights contract in the UK. Part of that conversation is for me, or that I've heard around this on the subject is, is it time for women's football to go behind a paywall or does it still need to have the reach of free-to-air TV? I don't know where you guys want to start with that or who wants to jump in on that. I will just feel really strongly about it and I don't want it behind a paywall because we are still a growth sport. We're still growing. We are still trying to find our mass audiences. Yes, we've got the mass audiences on the international stage. So in the tournaments, we have 10 million people watching the Lionesses. But week to week, we are in a growth stage. So we can't alienate any audiences. We are still trying to reach audiences. We're trying to find out who the audience actually is. Is it current men's football fans that we're trying to bring across or is it we're trying to reach whole new audiences is it an amalgamation of both so while you're still in that phase I just think don't shut any doors you need to keep them open and there is the argument that do we need to put a price on football you know why are you giving away something for free but I don't think that's right for broadcasts you know gate money absolutely put a price on it but I think personally I'd like to see it free to air don't don't turn away any potential audiences. Currently, the mix we've got, right, is we've got BBC. They've got their live games. Those goes out to, to really big audiences, and that's been, I think, great to see. Then you've got Sky, who build up this like, pretty cool product in the way that they've built up the Premier League. Like, I think it's been a real gear shift for the WSL moving from BT to Sky. And then you've got the FA player as well, so people can go and watch games for free if they want to. Do you think that mix would be a benefit in, in that upcoming rights deal, Lena? Do you think that's the kind of model they should be going for, or should they switch towards the pay TV side? It's a really tough one. It's funny, we were, we were talking about this actually when we were just chatting before this because it is really a hot topic on all of our minds, you know, and our hopes and dreams and fears here as we are on this journey. I think, look, I take the beauty of this and even having this discussion is that it's maturing, right? Like th- it is actually a real discussion. People want to pay for this content. People think there is enough demand for a paywall. I will take that as the positive, right? The negative is, not the negative, but people are too quick to do that and too quick to take the financial investment in order to grow the game versus actually now we are, I totally agree with you. It's too early. We need to walk before we can run. We now have people interested. We now have people looking for the content. We now have demand, whether it's on streaming, whether it's on live, whether everywhere else it is. But let us be really successful there before you put it on a paywall. It's about that long-term gain. And I think that's what's actually been beautiful about women and everyone in this industry, all the stakeholders in women's sports, male or female, is that we know we're on a journey, right? And I think we've also been quite patient about that journey and not always taken that check right out of the gate. But I think we need to make sure that we just don't get excited now because we have seen a little bit of success coming off the back of LINS's amazing Euros, totally off the back of everything else. Like everyone's like, they want to take advantage of it. We just need to slow down right now. Also, think about the audiences you're trying to attract. So the big thing is 
women's football, younger audiences, that's, you know, a way you can look at it. But younger audiences, they're not paying the subscriptions. They've got to rely on their parents to have the right subscription to the right channel. So that's two barriers already. You've got to have the parents who've got the subscription and then they've got to have the subscription to the right channel. So if we are trying to open it up, don't put any barriers in the way if the younger audience is what we're going for here. Also, from a sponsorship perspective, you need as many eyeballs as possible. I know it's a different buy in women's sports. I know we're all saying the same thing, that it's about the quality, not the quantity. But you still need a bit of the quantity to go with it. And you still need that exposure. And people are doing this in, in order to reach those right audiences. And again, like you said, it's a bit of a disconnect, right? There's, yeah. there's the paywall and the parent subscription, the blah, 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 blah. We're kind of going down the wrong path. Yeah, I mean, I think you saw that a little bit this year with uh, the zone and their decisions around that what they wanted to do with the women's Champions League coverage, right? Like initially, I think the plan was to take it all behind a paywall, and then I think probably they just didn't get the English teams into the group stages that they wanted, so the interest perhaps isn't there, or the the like the interest that they seen wasn't there before in order to be like, okay, I think we can start charging for this, and it's that tipping point. At which point do you go? I don't always want to revert back to let's compare it to men's football, but it's an easy benchmark because everyone sort of understands the marketplace. In men's football, we had 100 years of football before we then went, oh, let's have a paywall in 1992. So I think, you know, we're, we're still on 50 years catch up because women's football was banned for the 50 years. So like Lena says, it's, look, this is brilliant, it's exciting, but shall we not ruin it by jumping too quickly and work on the build rather than try and jump? It's, you know, it's almost like when you're selling a business, it's like, don't sell too soon because you haven't reached the full potential. It's like, can we just get to where we need to get to before we go, how do we actually monetize this fully? Mm. Well, the other thing that's happened in this last right cycle is that like you've seen a real like enhancement of the product, as I said, about Sky. I think they're in a completely different position to where they were at the start of that right cycle in terms of coming into this conversation. Like they probably now view that as something that they don't want to lose in a way before that they didn't. Yeah. It's great that they're investing in a quality product. I mean, that's the best thing you can do, right? Because that, again, it will appeal to the audiences and it will appeal to men's audiences as well. Because I think there's an element of everyone wants to see a quality product, right? And I think that that investment has to come first. And then ultimately, you know, yes, the new audiences that might be more used to short form, might used to be a little rougher or whatever, that's fine. But you still need to get the, shall we say, the true football fanatics, right? From that, you need to serve them up what they're used to. That's what Sky have done brilliantly in that they serve the actual fanatic in that they have all that time for analysis. Like, you know, like network TV is great, but they're restricted by scheduling. So yesterday, the Arsenal-Chelsea game was on BBC One, maybe BBC Two, whichever one it was. They literally did, I think, four minutes analysis at the end. And there was so much in that game that you needed to get into. Whereas on Sky, they have the luxury of an hour post-match or whatever they do. And they've literally, you know, they've got the tactics board. They've got Karen Garney and Caroline Barker up at the board, you know, dissecting everything about the game and you know we need women's football on network tv that does bring it with it the limitations like for the fact that the women's football show the highlight show was still on at midnight and i always bang on about this but i'm like my 14 year old niece does not watch the women's football show at midnight on a sunday and by monday they've kind of moved on to the next thing prior to the euros and then the world cup she couldn't name loads of women's footballers whereas she could the arsenal men team or the spurs men team oh all day long because they weren't seeing them so, you know, there is network TV, yes, the numbers, but they are restricted by the schedules. Does that then need to be like a thing that the BBC or whoever it is that takes on that free-to-air side of it takes on a, we need a proper match of the day for women? Because like, that is still the most watched football programme like, every week in the UK. And there's not really a female equivalent for the WSL. And that to me seems maybe an obvious next step if you are going to go down that PTV road, especially. I think 
that'd be great. I just don't think we're there yet. I think we really need to do a few more hard yards of this and have some sort of sustainable returns and people going to games. And when we do it, when we finally get to that hump, I don't want people to say, oh, they're doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. I want to do it from a demand base where the demand builds up where they just have to do it. And I know that sounds a little bit backwards, but I just feel like that's how they're going to get the quality programming, how they get the quality punters and other like quality presenters. That's the most important thing. And also as a spectacle, someone said to me when I sort of had a little moan about this a few years ago, they would say, but like, look, 59,000 people at the Emirates Day looks great on TV, would make a lovely bit on match of the day. But if you've got 3,000 people at the next game, actually as a product, doesn't look as great as a spectacle. So, you know, there's a lot of work for us to do on gate numbers and physical audiences versus them putting that product on the TV. But, it, but it's linked. I mean, I would say it's linked, right? I mean, it's, a, yeah, it's linked. Comes right? first. Like, comes first, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I, I just feel like that shouldn't be a benchmark right now. It's not number one on my wish list to have match of the day right now. I think the number one thing is getting that coverage out there. And also with so much else on and so many other ways to absorb football and these 14-year-olds or these teenagers, right? They're streaming it. They're on YouTube. They're online. They're, you know, match of the day is, is a little bit generational. Yes, it's still the most watched. And I think it, that would be a real stamp of approval and, and I'm not saying that we don't want it I would just say right now it's not high they're not number one but always. even the women's football show that like, why isn't it branded match of the day if you just yeah, branded it match of the day I would just do that as an easy win then it's like well all football's football well so. maybe not at midnight but yes yeah not, yeah. please don't put it on a midnight <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but you know what you're so right with that I mean it could just rebrand that why, yeah. why would why you is not it called the women's football why show? would you not rebrand it I mean yeah. every, everything else is sort of like the, the, the easy way to do anything is just to take the male and the female version of it yeah. And yet they've made this delineation or segregation. Because then to audiences, you're just going, here's a football product. Mm. And it's like you say, the stamp of the match of the day brand, that brings credibility. That brings, right, we're treating this on a level playing field. Before we started recording, you were name dropping. I'm going to name drop a little bit. I interviewed Gary Lineker earlier this year, and he actually said pretty much exactly the same thing. One of the things he told me was like, I don't understand why we have to refer to it as women's football. Football is football. I do that. You know, like my WhatsApp group's like, oh, is anyone going to Spurs United on Sunday? And they'd be like, I think we're playing United, Joe. And I'd just do it. Or I'd go, I'd say, I'm going to Arsenal Chelsea on Sunday. They'd be like, what? I didn't know Arsenal. I'm like, no, the women's game. But I just do it just because if you start, because you're right, if you just start normalising it, it's like in sports bulletins. I just think one of the easiest ways to, you know, like Lena was saying, is just get eyes on it and normalise talking about it is put the results in your sports bulletins. Put it in your headlines of every, you know, sports programme on the hour. Just, you know, the result in the WSL tonight was... United for Spurs Neil or you know, whatever it was. And I just think you need to tell me stuff. You can't just expect people to know what's going on or you can't expect people to go and find it. We need to serve it to them. So I think that's just a quick win. Final thing on media, from a narrative perspective, but also from a kind of investment perspective, how important is it for the WSL's next rights deal to be a significant increase in terms of the fee, like the overall number that we're seeing? So I think currently it's good 24 million maybe was the quote for the last time and that included a bit of VIK. Then WSL obviously just done record numbers there. How important is it for the next one to be a significant uptick, do you think, for the WSL? I think it's more important that we get the coverage that we need and sort of get the carrier and the coverage that we need is probably more important than these numbers. Because in the grand scheme of things, these are so much smaller numbers than the men's game. Yes, they're groundbreaking and we're, you know, up X amount of percent and it feels good because it reinforces all the job that we're doing. Every day we get up, we're trying to drive this forward, that we're trying to normalize it, that it's not just women's football. But I might be in the minority here, but I think... It's great. It would be a great, again, stamp of approval if we can get that sort of double digit growth on the rights fees. But to me, it's more about the what than it is. 
on the how much, right? Like I, I think for us right now, it's really about making sure that they do the proper investment in the production and in the highlights and in the other pieces way more to me than these sort of record-breaking rights. Because again, we're still talking about big percentage increases on not very much in the grand scheme of football media rights. I mean, that's a fair point. I would say with my agent's hat on, we are quite looking forward to the new broadcast deal because I'm hoping it will really filter down into the clubs and help wages because we do have a real issue between international players slash players at maybe the top four clubs getting paid this and being able to earn quite a good living. And then I still have players on 40 grand a year, a year, not a week, just for clarification. And so, you know, if we're saying this is an exciting product, this is, you know, the the epitome of women's professional sport, we need to pay for that. I don't care what the figure is. I just want the figure to mean that every club won't have a reason to say we can't pay this. They won't have a reason to say we can't have these facilities at the training. I mean, that's that's an absolute fair point. And I I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. I just think that, you know, if we get too fixed on the number, but I will say, right, it's the whole wheel, right? So the higher the broadcast fees, the higher the salaries, the higher blah, 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 and we can have a better product. And and I completely understand that sort of trickle down or or the wheel of how it all works. It's just more about just getting fixated yeah. on that single thing. Numbers can be the number. Number. As long as as long as it is fueling finally what it should be fueling on the quality product, yes, I yeah. agree with that. I think if you were to redesign men's football, the amount of money coming in at the top doesn't necessarily need to be that high because it's just all it does is just make a group richer, but you need a point where there's a tipping point and yeah. women's football isn't there yet. To the point where I'm a Brighton fan, but I wrote something earlier this year for a fan team basically saying, we could have the best women's football team in the UK if we invested probably less than Adam Lalana's weekly wage into our women's team. And the maths on it is still pretty crazy. It's brilliant. And you've got that amazing training centre. So I'd say Brighton Art Club that I'm investing and I guarantee they will reap the rewards because when you take a player down there and go, would you like to play here? <laughs> it looks and feels professional and impressive. Whereas there's still some training rounds you'll go to and it's like, this is a really good club, but yeah. it still doesn't feel very nice to turn up to every day. And I would say building on that, I mean, we work a lot with Brighton here at Walsman and um, through our partnership with American Express, and they are very invested also in women's sports. So, so you're showing them a beautiful stadium. So to a player, right, get a beautiful stadium with a top-tier partner and, and sponsor that wants to activate around it. I mean, that's a nice story. Yeah, that's, that's a good sell. And Paul Barber and the chief exec is on the board of women in football. So, you know, but like, genuinely, I think they are invested. I think they are genuinely on the journey. They are putting the money in. And I think they're also realistic about they don't need the return. I don't feel like they're going, we need the return on this in six months. They're going, we will get a return on this. We are going to invest. They're yeah. ultimately putting the right money in the right places where they're seeing an, uh, a result from that. Mm. That's a, leads quite nicely onto my next question, which is about Angel City and their model that they've taken. I mean, they've, they've actually proven to be very commercially successful. And by baking into their their whole structure, the social outreach, the fact that we're doing this differently, we're trying to be a different kind of club. People kind of hold that up as a great example. And Julie Ehrman spoke at Sports Pro Madrid a couple of weeks ago. She was extolling that kind of thing. But how easy is that to replicate? They've done a great job with it. How easy is that for other clubs to be like, oh, yeah, we could do that as well? I mean, I think they've done a brilliant job, right? And I think they have an amazing concept. And I think for LA, for that club, for what they've done, for everything they stand for, it works for them. Unless you are going to literally walk the walk on that and talk the talk, I think you could try and do that. But it's going to change a real shift in mindset in order to get to that. So it works for them. But I would be fearful that people would almost sort of um, try to do it a little bit, right? Because they're still worrying about paying their payroll, right? They're still worrying about sort of, okay, the numbers and the gate receipts and everything else. That, you know, Angel City has made a commitment 
and they have really strong backers and everyone has bought into this ethos around it. And so it works for them. So I would hesitate in advising other clubs to do the same unless they're really going to take that long term view of this and say, okay, for the next five years, we might be in the red for a bit, but this is what we're going to do. And, you know, even if the sponsorship deal is X size and 10% of it's going to go into whatever city that we're working in, it's not going to impact the salaries of our players. It's not going to impact the salaries of our staff or the uniforms or anything else that you're going to do to the quality of the product. They have to make that investment. And if they do it, then that's great. Or maybe it comes from above with the new co, right? Maybe that's something that they sort of say is a mandate moving forward. I mean, if something like that happens, I think that'll make it a little bit easier for everyone to embrace it. My fear is just the halfway house of that. I heard Julie speak in Madrid and I thought, she's an incredible, impressive woman. We all love the Angel City story. But I kind of go, is it successful because of the celebrity around it, because of the excitement around it? Or is it successful because they give 10% to the local community? I don't think if any club, any of the WSL teams could go, we're going to give 10% of our profit to the local community. I don't think that's going to make me support a club because all the clubs do great CSR. All the clubs have good foundations. They maybe just don't shout about it in a way or we don't listen in a way that we do with Angel City because it's got some famous people talking about it. I mean, the other thing is they were able to build a stadium from scratch that catered for their audience. As a women's football fan in the UK, we're going to a ground that was built mainly for men Lots of non-league stadiums, generally the ones we go to. There wasn't changing facilities the other week. I think Angel City have a pram park. Yeah. They have a... I remember some of, you know, some of my friends saying they'd been to watch an Angel City. They were like, Joe, there was a bar just behind the concourse. They were making porn star martinis for us. Porn star martini at a football game. I mean, this is unheard of. I can just about get a Bovril at King's Meadow or, you know, Leighton Orient's a bit nicer to when you go and watch Spurs. They've done it so well because they literally started from scratch, whereas... This country, we're kind of jumping on something and trying to make shift it to work for this new audience that we're trying to cater for. So, yes, amazing success story, but they had all this backing. I'm just not sure, like Lena says, I don't know that you pick it up and replicate it here. As you said, women's football is still in the kind of startup phase and it's challenger phase, right? So it does have the chance to be an industry which doesn't just try to replicate the norms of men's football that's been established. It can do things slightly differently. And I think it does that already. But is that perhaps how it finds its best success in that maybe grey area between exactly what Angel City are doing and being different, distinctly different from men's football as an industry? Yeah, I think so. I think it has to, right? I mean, I think that that everything has shown that, you know, being different is good, right? And I think it, it is not shackled by the same sort of traditional mantra. I mean, I say this affectionately as Americans, traditional English football fans don't like a lot of change, right? They That product is the product and you definitely, you know, it's very sensitive to any sort of commercialization. It's very sensitive to any too much entertainment. It's very sensitive to just how it works and the restrictions around that. But around women's football, funny enough, all the shackles are off. And I think a lot of that does come from the tribal nature of men's football. You don't really have that in women's football. It's quite interesting. It's like one of my colleagues mentioned that to me for the first time. And I was like, you know, you're right. Because as we were saying, right, like you can be an Arsenal fan, but ultimately... You might even support a Spurs player because ultimately they're on playing for the Lionesses, right? It goes back to, you know, like how young people consume football. They basically follow players. So, you know, PSG got all these additional fans because of Mbappe. So, you know, like my niece and nephew, they learn about players on FIFA and then they then follow the team. So I'm having to buy PSG kits and buy Munich yeah. kits and goodness knows what else because they're following individual players. And actually at the Emirates yesterday, I bumped into, so I go to Spurs, got season ticket at Spurs. The two people I sit with went to uni with, husband and wife. 
they've got season tickets at Spurs, but I bumped into their daughter at Arsenal, 15-year-old, and I was like, what are you doing here? She's like, oh, yeah, I'm just coming to see the players because, and that doesn't mean she's an Arsenal fan. I said, who are you supporting today? She went, probably Arsenal because she loved the Lionesses and Arsenal obviously had a lot of the Lionesses on display. But she's a staunch Spurs fan. It was just very inclusive. We were going to see individual players. And, you know, if we're going back to how we're finding these new audiences, it is inclusive. Quite daunting going to a men's game if you're young. And I mean, it's very, it's very hard to get a ticket, but also it can be really daunting. It also feels very sort of far away, right? Like I feel like they feel very personal, these personal relationships they've started to build with the Lionesses. It's amazing, right? They, they really sort of vested in this. And I also feel that the rights holder organizations are also embracing that as well. I mean, we work with UEFA for quite a long time now, but we're very involved in their women's Euros campaigns. And it's funny that there's one view on the men's side of it, which is fine. It's very traditional. Like don't fix it if it isn't broken, right? Like it just really promote and support the best in the game and the best in the world. And then on the women's side, it was just more about just the creativity, the engagement, the embracing, the celebration of the beautiful game was back again. And that's quite cool to me. I think it's like, particularly as an American sitting here and now I've been here for 13 years, I've loved watching sort of the reaction on different sides of it and watching sort of the growth of the women's game since I've been here has been exponential. But yet the rules don't apply. It's great. It's really, and I think we have to take advantage of it, but not by carbon copying certain things that work in different markets in different places. We have to really find what works here with the right. Also, how lovely. We can just, you know, let's look at the Premier League and go, well, what did they do wrong? Yeah, that makes sense. What a joy. You know, someone's been there before and made certain mistakes and we can kind of learn from that and say, okay, well, that worked. That is great. That isn't so great. So let's not do that. What's one thing that you think is great that you'd love to see come in, like an innovation that only women's football has the opportunity to do? Maybe the, the access piece in terms of, like in men's football, I think the press team and the, the comms teams of men's football teams have had to be very often on the defensive and very protective and very, I want to say computer says no, but it's they don't want to allow access because they've had to protect everyone so much. And I think in women's football, what we've seen especially is, you know, like yesterday we had one of our clients was within the Arsenal team she doesn't work for Arsenal. She's, you know, a content creator. And she was literally given an Arsenal jacket, given the access, and she was on the pitch with the players. She was, you know, around all behind the scenes. So we, you know, we always moan in the men's game, we want to be in the changing room. Like we want tunnel, you know, we want tunnel gam. And it's something we've we've kind of been crying out for. Whereas in women's football, it's it feels like we do get that a bit more. Maybe that's one and you've got to kind of protect that as well, haven't you? Because like, the women's game is only going to get more professional and you'll see don't ask too much of, of, of women's footballers because they've already had to do more than most to get to where they are, right? Yeah, and that goes, but you know, the, the going around talking, you know, seeing all the fans at the end, it's such a hard one because yes, when there's 2,000 fans or 1,000 fans, you can probably get around most of them. When there's 60,000 fans at the Emirates, you can't. Yeah, but would you not say that that's, that's part of the beauty of it is that people feel about this community around women's football they really feel part of it. They feel they are, I mean, what do they say? It's like 45% more likely to buy a sponsored product. And 45, I mean, the stats are amazing as far as like this community, this almost like cult-like following of like, and protection mm. of what they love and the accessibility that they do have. And, yeah. and I feel, I don't know, I mean, you're closer with it to some of the talent, but I mean, I feel the talent really feel that, right? Which makes them want to go out there, makes them want to meet their fans, even though it is more than you would expect from a man. Yeah. But I would feel that their fans tend to be a bit nicer as well. Yeah, and I just, I think you, you feed off that, yeah, don't you? I, I really appreciate 
what these women are doing. Exactly. And and both both ways, you know, the players appreciate that 60,000 fans are, you know, paying money and coming out and supporting them and engaging with them on social media, you know, being part of that community because that's their community as well. You t- started touching on there, Lena, the sponsorship proposition and how different that is. What is unique about women's football in that regard? Like, what's the kind of thing that, like, when you're going to a brand and saying, this is what you get when you buy into women's football, what's, what is that thing? That the first answer is not usually no. <laughs> it is nice. <laughs> no, uh, in all seriousness, no. And there are a lot of clubs out there. And I would say that the sponsorship landscape has changed again, as evolved in the last 13 years I've been here. And what I would say, though, in the women's space is they really want to work with you, right? Like, again, they're really like, okay, so this is the product we have. This is what we're trying to do. And the brand can come to the table and say, okay, this is what we're trying to do and what we're trying to reach. And then we can co-create something. It's not as off the shelf. There's more space to try things. I think the appeal of football is so great. So many eyeballs. It is the number one global sport, right? People are infatuated. They live and die by it. They are tribal. They define their days, lives, years, friendships from this. But that also doesn't leave a lot of space for creativity. And there's also a potential opportunity to polarize some of the fans or to turn them off by working too closely with a partner or a sponsor. And um, in the women's game, you're just enabling access and content and engagement and providing value to the fans, providing value to the players, providing something that they don't have to further either enjoy the sport that they're playing or enjoy the sport that they're watching and they're a fan of. That's really quite cool. And I think people approach investments in that way. And maybe because it's a smaller investment right now, it won't always be like that. But maybe it is because everyone sort of says, okay, well, we can be a little bit more creative. But I just think, again, it it speaks to the vibe that's around women's football and women's sports. I shouldn't just say football right now around women's sports of that. So I I feel that sponsors approach it a little bit more open, that it is about that engagement. You need to be loved. You want to be loved. That's why you're playing in this space. Yeah, it's that authenticity piece, isn't it? I think that's why loads of brands, we find loads of brands are are coming to us and kind of saying, look, we really want to get involved. And they're also a lot more willing to listen to us. So we have loads of brands who say, we really want to work with your client or we really want to work with you, you know, whether it's women in football or whether it's my clients at Tongue Tide. It's very much, we want to be involved in the sport. We want to engage, but we don't know how. Could you help us or, you know, could you work with us? You know, like I think there's some really interesting brands getting involved. So Zero, I've obviously started, you know, we do some work with women in football with them, but then they did this amazing campaign. I think it was during the World Cup and I saw the, the ads were on ITV. So Zero is a accountancy package, which actually bizarrely I do when I set up the business, I actually started using it. But they did these really good stories about these female entrepreneurs. So it was all female entrepreneurs in football. And they had this advertising campaign. It was genuinely authentic. It was like, here's the product. Here's how it's used in football. And here's the women who are doing it. And I just thought it was so clever. It's like, I'd never heard of your maquillage until they started sponsoring Arsenal. Yesterday at the game, there was a tote bag on everybody's seat from your maquillage. I now know exactly what all maquillage do. I know why sports people should wear it. And I know that there are brands who are engaging with sports people. You know, it's, it's it, that kind of thing. And then there's the sponsors that have just, you know, we work with a lot like MasterCard or Cadbury's who have just supported women's football slash women's sports from the off. And so, you know, I personally, Pepsi, we work, we do a lot of work with, I sort of feel a loyalty to them as well because I feel like they invested I love all the new brands coming in and that's really exciting. They've got to be in it for the right reasons and you kind of want to discuss with them, why do you want to do this? Do you just want a face next to your name? That doesn't really work for us. But if you're genuinely engaged with it, like Barclays, have, you know, they were the first ever funders of women in football. Thank you, thank you, thank you again, because we could actually get some staff and, you know, build this network from eight people to 8,000 people. You know, that's what they did for us. 
you know, I personally have a, a great loyalty to those that were there, but also super welcoming of the new brands and, you know, trying to educate them on how they can best use this talent to activate. There's definitely a narrative for new brands that come into this because it's something that is more accessible, as you said, but also it's a different kind of athlete that they're working with too. What have you seen on kind of those newer brands coming in and how they want to approach it? Like, is there any kind of teaching or lessons that you have to give them as they come into women's football or women's sport generally? I don't think a lot of people are investing in women's sports the same way they invest in men's. I think the industry has moved on and we kind of understand it's not if I'm going to invest, it's how I'm going to invest. And it has to be different and understand how to get the best out of the players and the talent and to understand sort of that these women, right, they're paid, what, 21 percent less even more over here. But in general, U.S. debt would be 21% less. So they understand they have to make up 80% more by doing all this extra stuff. So give them a reason to believe. Build programs around that. Build programs around storytelling. But I think a good rights holder and a good agent and a good team around it, I mean, it takes a village to do this, right? And you have to understand all the different players in order to get the most value out of it. And I think the partners and the sponsors that are coming into the space know that. And so they're trying to get smart as they come in. And they are literally putting themselves with a lot of trust in everyone's hands and it's working, yeah. right? And and I think those are the people that are succeeding in this space. They understand what they're buying. They understand they know what they don't know and they understand that they need to let the experts help them understand how to help grow here. And But they also have to have a sense of partnership as they're doing this. It's a really different, it's not sort of a talking down to or I'm paying you money so therefore I get this. It's more of like, okay, I'm investing. I'm not buying a sponsorship deal. I'm investing in the future of women's sports. And I think that's super important. Yeah, I think it is a partnership. I think all the brands we work with, I really feel it's not a, here's what we're doing. There's the deliverables. There's the paycheck. It's very much, how does this best work? How does this sit with that individual? How can we do this as a partnership? And very much, we're in this for the long term. I mean, it has been quite interesting, less so now, but definitely the last few years when we've been working with brands and understanding that they are professional athletes and that their schedule is actually on a par with the men's schedule, even though they might not be earning as much. You know, I think, you know, Chelsea, their fixtures, you know, we have three fixtures in a week. You know, if we're trying to look at stuff for Emma Hayes or, you know, Leah at Arsenal, even while she's been injured, the rehab schedule, it's serious. It's time consuming. It's you're in club every day. There's not that much time. And I think explaining that to brands because there was a perception of, that's just women's football, they're more accessible, we've got more time with them. It's like, no, we have got more time with them and we'll give you the time, but you have to understand we are still beholden to... Well, they're still athletes at their core. they have to sleep, live, recover, be in club, you know, match their minus ones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Has there got to a point then where women, uh, female athletes are now, I think, slightly undervalued by brands in terms of, like, as you said, the ones at the very top are able to, they're doing big deals with, with big companies. There's a group in the middle, a group below that. And like, I mean, I think it, I think it goes without saying that female athletes are undervalued. That's not really, I don't think that's controversial. But is the market still reflecting that even when you're going into those talks? It's changing so much. And I, you know, I don't want to say it's changing weekly, but it, I mean, it's changing so quickly. You know, you have to understand when you're pricing up partnerships, the footprint that the female athletes have, and like Lena said, the value of it in terms of recognition, you know, the Women's Sport Trust did a, did a survey and I think they found that the brands that had engaged slash sponsored women's sport were thought of, I think it was 45%. Is there something more favourably than that? But, I mean, it was huge numbers. Um, the way people felt about Gucci because they'd worked with Leah was crazy. You know, a global brand like Gucci. Of course, I'm going to say they're undervalued. I'm an agent. But 
<laughs> I'm also very, re- I'm not, I'm not. I was laughing when no. the other question. I was like, <laughs> <Barely> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm very realistic and I understand the marketplace. I would just say it's changing and the value is increasing. I don't want to say daily. You know, their social media footprint is insane. They are. They're really, and they're so engaging. And it's so really engaged. And it's that. It's, you're not actually just buying the numbers, you're buying the engagement and smart brands rather than going, how many followers have they got? They'll go, send, you know, what's the engagement? And that's where we're at. The engagement they have is incredible. And there's a value on that. I think they are undervalued, but I think the brands we work with certainly understand the value. Yeah. And I would say it's part of the process. They are getting more and more valued. I think people are, are getting more and more interested in spending in the space. Everyone's more and more interested. And you see it with any sport, any emerging sport, emerging in people's sphere of culture, right? Women's sports are now becoming embedded in day-to-day culture. As you see that more and more and more, you'll see the price of access going up and up and up. It's just a supply and demand market, right? And I think an agent's always going to say they're undervalued. But then I would say also... The more relevant they are, the more people walking down the street, the more people that want them in, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. The more people that are demanding their time, the price will naturally go up. So I don't know if we should be worried about this right now. I think that there's an element of it. It does probably need to play catch up. I would say not just catch up with the top players. It's just that next, second and third tier. And once those guys are now getting demanded and people knowing them by name, I think then the pricing will catch up a bit. I agree. And I think the brands that understand the market absolutely know the value and they pay what they need to pay. I think it's sometimes brands that are maybe new and they're kind of expecting that we're still going to get a bargain in women's football. And I'm like, we're not there. That was 10 years ago. But it's all relatively new. I mean, we, we, we have been on a journey for a very long time, but I think it's been in the mainstream public since 2022, really. I mean, it's 18 like the, months. Last 18 changed. months, it's just gone, it's skyrocketed, right? I mean, it, it's funny. And I think it's almost a bit frustrating for those of us that have been in this for probably longer than we want to say and gone on this journey and, and for me in different markets and different places and different sports. But, you know, really for the person walking down the street, they really only started to care about 18 months ago. Even my mum, who I think her first England game was England-Norway at the Amex. Great first game to go to. Like She was like, ah, oh, it's just so different to every other football experience I've ever had. And she's now extremely happy about this new stadium being built so she can go to Denmark, Denmark regularly. The last subject I wanted to go into was like how the game is being run. And I think that's a really interesting time, especially in the WSL with Newco coming in now. We talked about like having different norms like commercially for the men's game. What's the opportunity, do you think, from a, like a running the sport perspective when it comes to, to women's football, down with women's sports more generally, that they have that opportunity uh, because of where it is on that journey? I mean, how exciting that you can literally sit down and go, right, what are we doing with this product? I mean... Here's a blank piece of paper. Off we go. I just think it's such an opportunity. So, and it's we've needed it for years. The FA have run it really well. They've done what they've done. They've cared for it. And now they need to just go, there you go. Go and run it like a business. You know, I mentioned earlier, I would be looking at what the Premier League did when they set up in 92 and go, okay, what did they do? What bits do we want to take from that? What worked? What didn't work? What do we like about it? What do we not like about it? What do we love about what the FA have done? you know, with the grassroots and the whole game sort of part, how much do we want to keep that? And then also look at the sort of relationship with clubs, as in men's clubs, because, you know, there is this point that some of the key teams, you know, Doncaster, Sunderland, even Charlton, Millwall Lionesses are now London City. You know, they were big players in the game that have fallen by the wayside because they weren't attached to a men's club. 
So, you know, looking at that model and is that, you know, going back to the Angel City conversation, are we going to have franchises or are we always going to be attached to men's clubs? There's so much room for remodeling and repurposing. And I'm super excited. I don't know how they're going to do it in six months if they are, you know, set to go. Or, you know, as rumoured, I think they're getting a £15 million loan. My concern is how are you doing this on £15 million? You know, that's why I bang on about, please, can we have lots of money in the broadcast deal? Thank you very much. That's fair enough. <laughs> No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the shackles are off, right? You're not comparing it to anyone else. You're literally blank sheet of paper. That's amazing. I totally agree with Joe on that piece of it. I worry that sometimes when you're a little bit farther from the game because you are a new co and you are not sort of in those lines, those very established historical lines of football that you're going to go have to go ask permission. So it just, I think the success will come in how much free reign that they're given from big brothers and sisters from all sides to really go change the game. That sounds cheesy, but it really does. They have to go and, you know, they have done a lot of homework to get to this point. I think it was the right model, though, to have it really run by the FA. I mean, I came up through the NBA and the WNBA. And I, and, and at the time, when I was at the WNBA, that was the right place for them, right? You could control it. You could coddle it. You could cultivate a fan base. And then you were able to let it go and release some of the restrictions on it. They didn't quite go to the JV model, but they did go to the point of obviously not every NBA team had to have a WNBA team, et cetera. And there's a time and a place for that. I don't know. Maybe I'm super conservative in this because I feel like that's a theme and everything I'm saying is that it's a journey. But I think they were on a journey. They got to a certain point and then they needed to break free, particularly for men's football, because it's just so overwhelming and casts a very big shadow. But the key will be in how much free reign they have. And like you said, 50 million Sounds like a lot, but I don't think it's a lot to get this started and what they need to do. If you've got 12 in a league and you've only got 15 minutes, if you're divvying it up, it's a million, you know, it's a million pound by club, technically. It's not just 12 clubs in a league, is it? Because you've got that. No, because you've got the championship. I'm pleased the championship are being included in this because we need that. We need that pathway. We need the depth of another league. But again, it's financing it. Yeah, because if you were looking at the Premier League, going back to that thing of 1992 like the mistakes of that is that like okay you cut off these 20 clubs and then they've spent the, the ensuing period basically like how on earth do we get more money down if you don't do that right at the start it's really hard it's a really smart move i think and it'll be the only way that you can have people sort of gently move up and down much easier it was interesting because the the vote for the championship the week before was i don't know eight out of 11 didn't want to be part of the new co then suddenly it flipped so it's interesting that they are the championship clubs or the current championship clubs are now on board and how they manage that conversation to get them on board. But absolutely, they need to be included. Otherwise, we have a European Super League of yeah. the, the, the new guys of <laughs> European Super League, basically, isn't it? That's true. That's true. <laughs> and I, I guess the other thing as well is that we talked a lot about the kind of the fact that it has a really authentic reach. It goes down and touches the grassroots game. It has a the women's game. It does that really, really well. How do you become more professional and not lose that? Don't think you. I don't think you have to lose that. I mean, I think it's a, it's an and and. I think that's something that, with the nature of the game and the sort of secret of its success, I mean, you can do that. I mean, I think the reason that a lot of male sports don't focus on grassroots is because they're making so much money in this other space and they have to pay the salaries and they have to do all these things. I think we're going to learn from that mistake because you constantly have to be feeding the funnel. You constantly have to be creating new fans. You constantly have to be exposing people to the game. And grassroots is actually a very effective way. It's not commercially that viable, but I just also think. I don't know if we have been commercializing it, right? Because grassroots is amazing for the number of people it touches and the data that you get. And I think we've always sort of thrown it away. Oh, that's grassroots. It's over there. Look what's going on in flag football. I mean, these databases are amazing and they actually can be like gold 
to the fact of I think we actually are going to get more value out of grassroots, not only from feeding the game, but also from feeding um, these fan bases and this, the value of, of communicating with those fan bases now. But also, it's, it's twofold. It's participation numbers. So if women, young girls are playing football yeah. at, at grassroots, they're your consumer, they're your audience. There's also, I think, in men's football, they're now realising that academies are the way to make money because, you know, you want to bring your own players through so then you can sell them on. So actually, if we look after our grassroots game, much as it's not about finding the stars of the future, you are going to find them just by investing in grassroots for young women. If I can push back that on a little and be like, okay, but does it look really professional if the top game touches the grassroots in that way? Or maybe is that just the prism in which I view men's football and think that's why that looks so professional is that they are so far away from Sunday League? Yeah, I would say that I think that's a special sauce is that like that you can see your superstars. You can see someone that you're going to like, I'm going to, oh my God, I could be captured the Lionesses. That's amazing, right? Like I think that is a number one thing we've learned from men's football is that accessibility is, I think that's back to your point earlier is like, Having that accessibility and access with people, we're not so afraid of what they're going to say. We might be at some point. That's fine. Yeah. And and I think you choose your players, but these are the role models. These pieces are embedded in society. And I think, I don't know, that if you lost that, I, I don't think it diminishes the professionalism of those athletes. I think it opens up that they're real people and they are invested in the future of the games. You know, you want to feel part of something and it's that ownership piece. It doesn't have to be a formal fan ownership. It's like we feel like, we have an ownership of the women's game because it's our game and that's at grassroots and at professional level. So I, I don't think it's a negative in any way, shape or form, personally. No, and I can see how you, as a as a traditional male football fan, I can see how it is because, you know, you're like, oh, you know, they're perfecting their art and all these things and they don't want to, you know, be, take so much time away from that. But I, I think it's just a different, I think it's flipping the coin a bit. I think it's flipping that perspective on it that, you know, the top of the game should be feeding the bottom of the game as well and the next generation. Okay. And um, I think we're nearly out of time, but could you perhaps give me a resolution for the women's game in 2024? Can be personal, can be for the broader landscape. I would really like fans to still come to stadiums and to focus on how we get fans to stadiums, because I think we have these moments where 60,000 fans at the Emirates or we have a Champions League semi-final and it all feels great. But what about the other five fixtures that day? How are we making sure that it's an event, even if it's not at Arsenal, even if it's not at Stamford Bridge? How do we ensure that everyone can go week in, week out, and is going week in, week out? Tough act to follow. But Sorry. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> it's a waffling act No, no, it's fine. not a waffling act. No, 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 no. I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, it's just sustainable, the sustainable growth here and that we don't get greedy. I think my one wish for next year is that you know, we've all been patient and growing. Again, I sound like a broken record on this, but I feel like the time is now. And as you said, you know, oh, what's the next TV deal? What's the next media deal? What's going on here? I think patience is my one ask for this next year is like, let's continue to double down. Let's get people going every every match, every day, every, buying tickets, tuning in every day, making it part of their, oh, let me see what's playing today. Let me see what's, let me engage with that content every day. And then we probably have another couple of years of that before we start getting too crazy about, you know, let's compare the men's and the women's media numbers. Let's compare the men's and women's sponsorships. I just want patience for this next year, two years or so. I know the sports industry is not known for the patience, <laughs> but that would be my goal and my wish, shall we say, for for 24 and beyond. Sports agents aren't their no, patients either. No, I was no, like, no, right, I'll put no. my negotiating <laughs> book away. <laughs> 
damn it. <laughs> Can't Sorry. ask for those big deals anywhere. Thank you. Quality deal. Quality. Yes, agreed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll be patient. <laughs> Patience. Okay, I think that's a lovely place to leave it. Nina, Joey, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.